Playing with Velvet Tom. And now, your host, with really bad timing, Velvet Tom. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good whenever you're listening to this. This is Bad Timing with Velvet Tom. I am your host, lover, loser, and legend, Velvet Tom. It's good to be back. It's been a while. Where have I been? Don't ask. I won't ask you. I've been gardening. I, I did. We had quite a garden. I grew, a, I grew a peck of pickled peppers. I grew a cumunculus amount of cucumbers. I grew a tumultuous amount of tomatoes. It was a lovely, alliterative garden, if I do say so myself. And I'm just going back for more this fall. I'm going to grow some rad radishes and some beautiful beets and some call-me-in-the-morning cauliflower and some broccoli in my day. Okay, that was a reach. It's all a reach. I'm so happy to be back. This is still misery. 200,000 plus people died of COVID-19. Seven and a half million have contracted it here in the United States. I can't believe that I haven't. Sorry for all the scraping noise. I'm in a closet surrounded by, basically hermetically sealed by my wife and I's clothing. Uh, We have an unhinged president of the United States, Lord knows what uh, his administration will uh, manage to pull off in the next few days, because we're just days away from this election, and he is yelling, law and order, law and order. Um, I guess, of course, you think about cops, and when you think about cops, you think about uniformed officers. You think about the beat cops, the ones on the streets, the ones that we seem to uh, have a confused message about defunding the police. Um, I don't know. I I think in the past I've never said particularly nice things about cops all the time in on the not so mean streets of Kansas City, Missouri and the suburbs. Cops don't see a lot of crime, so they're always looking for it. And it usually came in the form of traffic tickets. And so I used to get, like, speeding and traffic tickets quite a bit as a kid. I wasn't really the best or a reckless driver, so I kept the cops busy. I had a relationship with the police officers, but no throw my hands on the hood and cuff me and take me in. You know, that didn't come until I was a scofflaw where I really just did not pay my parking tickets. But that's a whole other city. But I guess if I got to say something about cops, they have... Being a police officer is the hardest customer service job there is, in my opinion. And I've worked customer service. I've worked restaurants. I've worked phone customer service. And phone customer service, man, I tell you what, people are brazen yelling on the phone at you. Maybe 911 office... uh, Operators might be worse than that, but being a cop is the 
got to be the worst customer service job there is because you have to go to the fray. There is People can come in to you, but really it's more effective if police officers go to them. You know, even doctors and nurses have a place where sick people come to them. Cops have to go to the crime or the crime that has happened or the victims of a crime or whatever your disputes, what have you. So also with that, though, being a cop and the history of policing, it's hundreds of years history, there is some not-so-nice things baked into being a cop. And, you know, racism's one of them. Not saying all cops are racist, but it's there for you to use if you need to. And the protect part, I think, is more protecting property than it is necessarily people. And that's just my humble opinion about it. And I know that I could and would be told wrong by certain law enforcement. But protecting property, it all seems that looting is the worst thing. Setting fire to a box that housed your merchandise uh, seems to be an awful thing. And it is, you know, just but also small businesses have things like insurance and coverage and if they don't, then it's, well, I'm, it's a whole other conversation. But racism and protecting property seem to be baked into policing. And there's also another thing about policing that seems bizarre is that the police have their own police. We started hearing about internal affairs department you know, in movies in the 70s and 80s about how cops have cops. Now, that is one hell of a human resources department where internal affairs officers have to be armed like the cops, because they are cops. They are cops who investigate cops. Now, there's got to be something not so right about your organization if you need other cops to hold you, a cop, accountable all of the time. Something to think about. I, there is no abolish the police. There is no defund the police. It's ridiculous. But cops shouldn't be handling every mentally ill person in the street and also maybe we need to get down to why are there so many mentally ill people on the streets maybe we need to work back words but that again is a whole other conversation that probably involves great fortune great crime everybody else loses I guess that's about as politically charged as I'm going to get. But if you listen to this episode, there is more of that to come. Because my guest today is a multi-hyphenate. It happens when you're in the biz out here in L.A., New York, Chicago, everywhere pop music talk about 
her career is what we're going to do today. Jennifer Barlow, a good friend of mine, someone that I met through uh, doing improvisation in the last couple of years with an independent group here. And to find out her credits has been wonderful and find out her story, what's she doing now, what's most important to her at this very moment, which is presidential politics. She'll talk more about that. And also one of her favorite gigs, which was with Garth Brooks. Now, listen to this wonderful interview that I have with my good friend and superstar multi-hyphenate, Jennifer Barlow. Say hello to the world, Jennifer. Hello, world. Hello. Crazy as you are, I still love you. Boy, I tell you what, you know, and we're the makeup of it, so it must be us that's crazy. We are, we are the world. We, we are, are this crazy. crazy. Oh, yeah, such yeah. a... I, or as I like to say, everybody's weird but me. Yes, everybody's weird but me. And mm -hmm. how have you been uh, tempering your weirdness during this entire time? Well, boy, I, I have to admit, I'm sort of getting back in touch with my reclusive self because I actually, when I was young, I used to always go in my room and shut the door and entertain myself for hours uh -huh. uh, playing dolls and making dresses and writing stories. And, you know, I, I, I guess I'm not super social. I I'm finding that out about myself. I mean, I enjoy people, but I'm sort of good at being a loner. I mean, I have my dog. Yes. So without my again? dog, I might feel differently. What's your dog's name again? Chester. Chester. That's right. Chester the molester. Chester the, the molester of dog toys. Yes. Chester, stop pumping your ball. Is this an R-rated uh, podcast? Or yes, not? yes, yes, it is. You know, I mean, some are, some aren't. You know, it depends on my guest, if they want to use filthy language, they're more than welcome to. It is very much supported. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll try, but sometimes it might slip one out. Uh, go ahead. Let it slip. Let, <laughs> it, let it fly. Uh, I, you know, I too had to get creative, you know, in my bedroom. Of course, I was sent to my room a lot. It wasn't really like I would willingly go. It was you better get there really fast, mister. So, um, but it, it, it forced some creativity because I had TV in my room and that's where I would get lost. Like little, ah. like being a little kid, get lost in TV. And stuff. My mom told me a story. I don't remember the story, but I got a kick out of hearing it because it sort of fits my personality. When I'm in the middle of a creative project, I almost go into a, a, a high almost, you know, like I'm just so focused, especially if there's a deadline and I'm trying to get something done. Uh -huh. And so she said when I was little once I'm, I, I was coloring on the table and I was coloring away and the chair, I was sort of leaning over on my, on my knees onto the table and the chair fell off onto the ground. 
And she said, I just kind of dug my elbows in and kept coloring without going to get the chair. So that's kind of how I feel right now with some of these projects I'm working on. I just go into the zone. Okay, so we were supposed to talk yesterday, but you were in the midst of one of these projects. Now, is this something you can talk about? Sure, I would love to talk about this project. Postponed our our very important talk that we're doing right now. Yes, uh, we were launching yesterday a contest for young people, well, people of all ages, to submit political videos about why it's important to vote this year more than ever. So it's called the So Go So Go Vote Already Video Challenge. And you can win prizes, you can have fun. I am, the judges are some really prominent entertainment industry people, Ooh. producers and directors. So you'll get exposure. And um, you'll also be helping to save the country, in my view, by just riding the wave, you know, getting, getting in. Yeah. And yep. I think I thought of, thought of it because um, I've been watching the news, like a lot of people, and watching the polls. And apparently the, the Republicans are very good about getting out the vote every year. They actually, every year, whether it's the inner the in-between elections for the Senate or whether it's a presidential election, they're much better at it. Yes. For some reason, the Democrats are not. So I'm like, why is that? And um, in particular, the, the young people kind of like, eh, I got stuff to do. So yeah. that's what this is for, to promote that. Make it sound fun. Nothing's going to change is usually the thing that I hear from younger people. Of course, you know, I have younger family members I have nieces and nephews who are very politically active and they're, you know, they're conservative politically active. I can't knock it. You know, I mean, I'm a liberal, but I can't knock that they're, that as soon as they're able to become a voting age, they're out there and engaged in voting. Now, I don't, I don't know about this election, but uh, last election, I'm going to put them on blast. They voted third party, and I'm just, you know, I like to ask where where is that third party now? And another thing, we really haven't heard from other presidential, uh, we haven't really heard from other elections going on. It has just been, you know, let's not sully the main event, this Biden-Trump fight with all these little outliers like Kanye West is very was very much on our ballot. I we we uh, my wife and I we mailed our ballot in. We dropped our uh, ballot. Is he off. was actually on the ballot. Are you kidding me? Omari Kanye West is a vice presidential candidate of an independent ticket, with the president being Rocky uh, Rock. Uh, Rocky Rock. Rocky Rock De La Rosario, I believe. I mean, some, but they, so Kanye West made the ballot. No one's talking about it. No one should be talking about it, I don't think. Well, we're talking about it. Well, we are because because <laughs> we have, over in the last couple of weeks, um, uh, been been involved in some symposia about voting for Biden, about getting the vote out for uh, Biden uh, with our friend. And the Senate. Mari. The Senate's very important. Yes, yes. That's another, thing, 
that's another thing I'm, you know, I've gotten into a lot of political debates on Facebook. Some of them I wish I could, had never entered into because sometimes it's just a bit of a clusterfuck on there. But um, I'm surprised actually by how many people, either they're being snarky or they don't understand how our government works. And they don't understand that the president, once he's in there, he can't just wave a wand and do things. You know, he doesn't even write the laws. No. You know? And so having the House, now we have the House, the Democrats, so we can write the laws, but then they have to pass the laws. So if you want, uh, I'll pick something that's easy. Uh, you want a clean planet. I think we all want a clean planet. And somebody in the House writes the bill about we want to do regulations on fossil fuels or what have you, or spend more money in clean fuel or windmills or um, electric cars. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just pass. It's then got to be voted on in the Senate. And so if people haven't been paying attention and not watching how the Senate votes, you're not really going to know who you should vote for. So, you know, you've got to pay attention to who's voting. Then you don't have to, you know, everybody on the, the right says, oh, the, the media is biased to the left. Everybody on the left says, oh, Fox News is fake news. But there is a way to just pay attention and see what's happening and who's voting for what. And you, can, you don't have to listen to what the spin is trying to tell you what to hear. You can hear it for yourself. So you can. That's my two cents. Um, it is a lovely two cents. I, <laughs> I stick with it this way, you know, especially with all the propositions here in the state that we live in, California. Uh, there, there are two sides. This is the thing that gets me about electing the president. Only electing the president of the United States is the most difficult, most antiquated, weird thing. We have propositions. I mean, they're probably called something else in different states, but it's either yes or no. And right. you get to see which one's yes or no. And usually... Uh, if I, whatever proposition, whether it's yes or no, if it's corporate interest, I know it's bad news. So I know to vote the opposite way of corporate interest because corporate interests are only interested in their corporations. So they really wouldn't be interested in- But the argument is there. But the argument there isn't, isn't the argument though that a lot of people own stocks in these corporations so if the corporation does well then the little guy does well whoever invented that was very smart because that way your stockholders okay so they're lying and cheating and eh, i'm still getting rich <laughs> you know like i'm about to go into the stock market i'm trying to learn how to go into the stock market and i can't do it because every time i think about it it's like oh i'm gonna invest in some company that is like the evil empire and yet they're growing and I can make money too. And you can. You can make money. Scary. They're it's violating scary. all sorts of humanitarian <laughs> laws. So it's I really bleep, 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 all over my phone. <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I want to invest in like like good things, like clean energy, and um, I don't know. I, I water, water for us to all have water because water is going to be a shortage. Water, uh, grabbing yeah. fresh water from the air, you know, because, yeah. because an invention. So that yeah, mm -hmm. but when you get in there, and 
they want you to, oh, you want to do this and that. And I guess um, right now the stock that everybody loves is uh, Amazon, you know, and Zoom. Oh, Zoom. Yeah, here we yeah, are. That's great. I love Zoom. I, I would invest in Zoom. Yeah. Here we are. I, well, I, we have a proposition, uh, yes, on 22, supporting a delivery drivers, DoorDash, Lyft, oh. and such. And however, the yes on that is supported by DoorDash, Lyft, and Uber. And it's so they, they can get out of treating these employees like employees. I don't know why anybody would want to monetize their car and drive other people around anyway. I, I've enjoyed the service in the past, but I mean, it's also the same to me as like. Oh, Airbnb. I love it. I love Zoom. What? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I love Uber and Lyft. I, I prefer Lyft. I love it yeah. because then I can go out and have a drink and I don't have to worry about getting home. And it seems a little more personable than a taxi. I don't know why it, I find that uh, Lyft and Uber drivers, especially the ones late at night, are more likely to talk and have a conversation with you, where taxi drivers are more like, oh, I'm all business. But back to what you were saying, um, I'm so glad you brought that up because I am so confused by this particular proposition because they have all these commercials with the Uber drivers saying, I like this because I can keep my job flexible and it sounds so good. Yeah. in the commercial like i should vote for this this is what the uber drivers want and they have way more money that i mean it's probably going to pass because of that but then i started reading the fine print and the paper and the ballot mm -hmm. and I, I guess some uber uber drivers are for it and some are against it it also i think it might affect me even though i'm not a driver i'm not sure if it'll affect me because i am an independent contractor and sometimes i'm w2 and sometimes i'm an independent contractor yes so I don't know if it's literally only for drivers or anybody who is in that classification of a gig worker. I'm very curious to find out if I'm included in there. Um, I think I am, even though I don't drive, I drive a, a computer cause I'm an editor. So I'm driving a computer. Well, here is how I understand it is that the, the list of expenses of an independent contractor since 2016, I think, since, since the tax laws changed, uh, was all that was concerning. Like you, you, there's less that you can deduct as an independent contractor, but that also does involve travel, like driving from one job to a next and being able to to deduct your mileage where you don't have that issue because you're just at your computer. So, so it might not affect you. As well, here's, here's the thing. Um, for the past two or three years, I've been working at different production companies and I work on different television shows. So they last for anywhere from, you know, might be a fill in for a week or it could go for three months for a whole season. And usually I was always paid 1099. I was an independent contractor. Yeah. I believe because of this new law, all of a sudden I got to start, I started getting paid as a W-2 employee. So I could no longer write off my editing software. I can no longer write off my website. That's how I promote to get jobs. Mm -hmm. I could no longer write off um, if I have to learn a new program, you know, like I have to learn after effects or something and I want to take a class. I can't write that off anymore. Yeah. So 
if it is, if I'm lumped in there with them, then it, it does affect me. The only thing I like about being a W-2 employee is that um, when I get laid off, if I've worked long enough, I've paid into the um, unemployment and then I can, that can help carry me over to the next job. Well, you know what, while we're talking tax strategies here, folks, <laughs> up because you'll need this information for next April if you have anything to claim at all. After <laughs> yeah, I'm going to claim. It is that the standard deduction has, has enlarged. So if, if all of your expenses are more than the standard deduction yearly, if you are paying thousands of dollars to upgrade your software on a yearly basis, then then it might affect you. But also that standard deduction has gone from 5,000 to, I believe, 10,000. I think it's it's doubled. So if your expenses can't, can't outweigh the standard deduction, then that is another reason you're better off being paid a W-2 person. I can't believe we're sitting here talking, doing our taxes. <laughs> when they pay your, <laughs> yes, and they pay your social security too. Yes, it pays into your social security. Okay, so you were talking about TV. Uh, you you are uh, Jen Barlow's super editor, but let's let's go let's go way way back uh, to this all started. How did this all start? How did your uh, foray, your adventure into entertainment begin? Oh wow, that's quite a long story, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> You got 42 uh, minutes, you know, or however long it needs to. I, I have so many hyphens. You know, I'm a hyphen, I'm this and I'm a that, and a, at yeah. least I'm never bored. Um, well, it, actually, I started as a child. I was a ballerina, and when I was 10, I was in a performing company where we toured not only nationally, but we also toured internationally. So we went to Japan and Manila and the Philippines and performed, and it was at a very young age, I was only 10. And at a very young age, I was bit by showbiz. Um, I got lots of attention when I was performing. I guess I, I just, you know, it's like a very, uh, not quite as exciting, but a very smaller version of being a rock star. Being, I mean, we were in opera houses and stuff with a big crowd. And I will never forget the feeling of being in the Nutcracker suite and, um, and doing four pirouettes on stage. Just luckily, I did four pirouettes. And um, okay, so while I okay, so while I have you stop. So you started at ten. Now, where did you start? Are you a California girl, or yes, you are. Yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area. In the Bay Area. Yep. So I, my mom would um, take me over to San Francisco every day, or we would have a driver. We'd get out of school early. We'd go over. We performed Nutcracker, Swan Lake, Giselle, all the classics. And it was really fun, you know, it was, it, I got my taste of showbiz. When I got older um, and started wanting to go to football games and, you know, be a teenager, I really lost interest. So instead I got into acting and that landed me in Hollywood because I wanted to be an actress. And I was an actress for many years. And I actually gave myself three months. I said, I'll, I'll give myself three months to make it as an actress, get a TV show or a movie. And if that doesn't work, I'll go home. And, <laughs> you know, Hotel California, I'm still here. Right. 
but I had a lot of really beginner's luck. You know, my very first audition was for Josie and the Pussycats. They were going to be doing a TV show. I don't know if, it, I think it might've been a sitcom or maybe, I think it was probably a sitcom. Yeah. And, but it was a daytime show, five days a week. And I auditioned for the, I don't remember her name, but she was the, the dingy one, the dumb blonde one. <laughs> um, and it was Fred Silverman at NBC. It was a really big job. I think it was like my first or second audition. And I, I was told you, you got the part. They said, it's not going to be a lot of money because it's daytime, but it's going to be a three-year contract. You're starting on Monday. And they booked me on Friday. And I was like, woohoo, Hollywood's easy. <laughs> I am going to be a star within three months. High five. And then on Friday, I got the call. You know, I called all my friends. I told everybody about it. On Friday, I got the call. Oh, the show didn't go after all. They decided to pull the plug on the whole idea. So talk about up and down. It's life in the big city. Yeah, life in the big city. But then I went on to do a lot of sitcoms, some... You know, a lot of guest star roles, some B-movies, some music videos, lots of music videos. Lots of music videos. Anything <laughs> of note? Do you want to tell us about anything? Oh, I have lots of stories. Um, well, the most notable one was I was I was in a Garth Brooks video, and it was called the, When the Thunder Rolls, or I think that's what it's called. God, Thunder it's Rolls, yeah. Thunder Rolls, yeah. And um, it was got country video of the year. It was... Um, controversial because there was violence and sex and i was his lover actually it was my first love scene so i had a love scene with garth brooks what <laughs> yes i That's did wild yes yes we were in bed together hands everywhere kissing wow. biting his lip yeah i bet he was so nervous i bet like you know he was such a gentleman he was just couldn't have been more nicer. Um, I was, I think I was a little bit nervous, but he, he was like, I really don't want to offend you in any way. So please, you're in control. If I do anything out of line, just tell me. Well, he said in kind of that Southern boy charming way, I just, if I do anything, ma'am, you just let me know. Cause I sure want to, you know, respect you. And, he was, and he was sincere, you know, the way I'm saying it, it sounds goofy, but he was very sincere. But and um, it wasn't that romantic because it was a little room. It was very cold. And you ha I had like 10 or 15 people all around me with cameras saying, throw your head back, you know, lick your lips. And so it's not as sexy as you might feel that it would be. It's, it's very technical, actually. You're trying to, you know, look like you're, that you're look, looking very uninhibited and that you're completely alone with this person, but of course you're not. So that was a big video. <laughs> very big one. Oh, that's so great. So Garth Brooks is a gentleman and people yeah. are barking sex orders at you during, yep. during it. Yeah. I, it almost, I know that we'll get to your editing career, but it almost sort of okay. like, this is how it all begins is that you want to take raw, weird, footage like experiences that you know you had on the other side of that lens and take that and turn it into something as well-meaning and working out and perhaps controversial so mm -hmm. anything else like any uh, hair metal videos like white snake or yeah, i was in um, 
rat a rat video loving you is a dirty job and someone's got to do it i think the song was called loving you or loving you is a dirty job and we were dressed in these little outfits of course and boots i think high-heeled boots spike stiletto heels and we had gas masks on for some of it and oh my god did they work us hard we were there for 10 hours it was non-union uh-huh. And usually when you work 10 hours on a movie set, there's a lot of sitting around and getting your makeup done and working on your lines and going to craft services. But they worked our butts off, man. They were like, okay, and again, and again, and again. Wow. But, um, I'm not, I don't think you see me that much in it. I've got a few shots. There was a lot of women. There was about, I don't know, 10 or 15 of us. And some of them were strippers, seasoned strippers. And I, I felt a little bit like um, the fish out of water. I'm a little bit of a nerd. And some of these girls were pretty like swearing never swearing every other word and loud, boisterous laughs, you know. <laughs> you know, and just real those kind of tomboy women. But by the end of seven or eight hours, I think the very toughest one of all, that kind of scared us all a little, she was literally sobbing because her feet were so sore from dancing in these stiletto boots. I think she was pouring, had blood, had blood on her feet and yeah. But it's a great video. It's really fun. If you get a chance to check it out. um, Yeah, dirty job. Levin used a dirty job. Now, how are you booking this back back then? Are you booking this through backstage or is an agent actually sending you for? Uh, I think I think um, they were all different. Um, it's so funny because every every part you get, as you well know, has a different story, you know, and they're sometimes very strange. And back then, I was actually doing go-go dancing in a little bar called the Hollywood Go-Go, which was across from a mortuary on Victory in North Hollywood. And we it was sort of like Coyote Ugly, where we were... We were bartenders, but we also danced on this little stage <laughs> with a jukebox. Right. And then we would go out and get money and collect for the jukebox. So there was a lot of um, blue collar workers in there, a lot of people from uh, the you know industry, people mm-hmm. gaffers and grips. And it was pretty, pretty okay crowd, to be honest. Kind of, I kind of felt comfortable other than I was scantily clad. But um, so somebody came up and I was dancing. He saw me dancing and... I remember his name was Cool Breeze. <laughs> and he and Cool Breeze said, Hey, I'm casting this thing. And you're kind of like rolling your eyes, like, yeah, right. I'm uh-huh. sure you are, you know. And he goes, No, no, let me write write down the number on the back of this half-wet napkin, you know, that was his beer coaster, you know. And so he writes down Cool Breeze Productions or what have you. I called him, I got the audition. I didn't know who Garth Brooks was. Um, I went in and, you know, did did a little performance in front of the camera and whatever they asked me to do and got the part, had no idea who Garth Brooks was, had no idea that it would actually be a very big video and kind of, you know, kind of exciting. So that was that story. But yeah, I had an agent. Um, that's That's how I got most of my auditions. Okay. I think they used to have something called drama log it's probably before your time and i'm probably dating myself but it was a magazine because we weren't on computers back then Mm -hmm. and it was like variety 
but it was more geared just for actors and there was lots of auditions in there as well. But you had to be careful because, you know, there's all kinds of people posting. They, there's no uh, venting, vetting process. Right. Uh, yeah. What about you? Uh, I don't have any music video credits. Well, you you don't? Know, I do. Well, uh, once I got out here, I became a commercial actor slash lounge singer. Uh, but uh, definitely uh, commercials all the way, still doing commercials. No theatrical credits at this time to speak of, dot, 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 dot. Because when is anything going to come back? There's a few things that are going to come back, but yada, yada. I, uh, I do have one music video. I don't know if it's up, but it was, it was a satire. It was a parody video for uh but it was based it was supposed to be a commercial so it was for career builder so it was uh it was a song to the tune of marvin gaye's sexual healing and i was the star of that music video but it it had the feeling of a karaoke <laughs> video you remember the old when karaoke was just starting to get hot in in america the bad videos that sort of went along with it sort of you know that were so nothing like what's that what what was your role? I, I was, uh, well, uh, one of the lyrics is, when I get this deal in, I'm going to need a sexual a sectional meeting. So basically, this guy's looking for a promotion. So he makes this, he makes the most impossible deal. And through mishaps and uh, misdirection, uh, he finally ends up at uh, the person's place that he's supposed to get a deal through i'm jumping through hoops literally i uh, jumping through hoops I'm like hula hoops having, i'm having mud flung at me it's <laughs> it's great time you know i mean it's the it's the actor it's the actor stuff where you do where you say yes to everything and get paid in one lump sum and everybody sees it a bajillion times so i know you just said yes to me uh what's that oh well of you course just said yes to me, yeah. i did yeah you did yeah well well that was fun i mean really and i got to do that myself i was in such a mode right now because uh everything is everything is self-tape and i'm not used to that i'm used to going to all the casting offices and i almost wish like there was that session director that was live with me while we were doing this so I was primed, like it was right after I had just done a self tape and I was like cursing up a storm because I was like, ah, cut. And so doing your commercial for, for, for getting out the vote was a breeze. It was like, it was like I just had a lousy meal and then I got to have a little dessert. Was yes, in case nobody knows what we're talking about. Uh, Tom was gracious enough to do a very short little comedy video for the contest I'm co-sponsoring. Um, I guess that's the word for it. There's a group of us putting it together. Yeah. Um, I'm, and it's called SoGoVoteAlready.com. So it's like, so go vote already. So go vote already. Yeah. Do that like family. So go vote already. So go vote already. That sounded Italian. So go vote already. So go, so go vote already. Forget about it. Forget about Don't it. Forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good. Uh, that would be a good commercial. Everybody's saying so go vote already. Like man on the street. 
you know, everybody's saying it. So go vote already. So go vote already. Yeah, like Jimmy Kimmel does. He gets all those. Oh, go vote already. So go vote already. Uh, so I want to talk about your TV. Now, uh, you said that you've done some TV. I know that there is a particular show that you have done that you recently were part of a, uh, that you're part of a virtual convention. We'll talk about that. But I gotta oh, ask, I gotta ask, uh, do, you ha do you have a Seinfeld credit? Did you ever do a Seinfeld? I did not. Yeah. No. Like, uh, how about sitcoms? Like any, any I have a friend that did a, I have a friend that did a Seinfeld. Oh yeah. Does that count? Uh, You'll have to have her on your show, actually. She's pretty amazing. Is she? Well, yeah, she did amazing. lots of stuff. And now she's uh, written a book. So we'll talk about that later. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So you recently did, you recently were an attendee for a virtual convention for mm -hmm. what I, I, what can we say about this sh show? Well, it's a little show that some of you might have heard of. It has to do with some outer space kind of stuff. And I think the original one was Star Trek. Yes. And then the one I was in was called Star Trek The Next Generation. Okay. And what character did you <laughs> portray on Star Trek The Next Generation? I portrayed Anthena Gibson, also known as en Ensign Gibson. And... Other than the pilot, I'm not sure about the original pilot, but once it launched into a series, I was the first female ever to pilot the Enterprise. Get out. <laughs> For real. Uh, so, true or false, you have an action figure. I do. Yeah. I have an action figure made in my image. It's a little Ensign Gibson action figure. Now, do you have it? Were you able to get your hand on it? Get your hand. I on will. It? Give me one second. I'll go show okay. it to you. <laughs> she's running off to get it. I can see the video. She's coming okay, back. Here she comes. Look! Oh, oh, the likeness. She looks kind of like a. I don't know. She's very tough. Very buff. Very buff. You were buff there. That was your. That was your. She's buff and she's tough, but um, and I have a little trading card too. Now, I noticed you're a red shirt, so is there a story behind that? Well, um, you know, the red shirts always die off, but here's my, uh, here's my trading card. Oh my gosh, so you have a trading card. Yeah, you can't see it because the camera makes it go backwards. Oh, but well, actually, no, it's, it's forward the way I'm reading it. It's oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I was just my, the reason why I was hired was because, and I told the same story. This was one of the questions in the, con the con, the convention I just did. Yeah. And, um, they asked us, how did you get the part? And this was through my agent. And they told us that they wanted someone who could quote unquote, fill out the suits, but also 
come off as an intelligent. So they said they were looking for a Lonnie Anderson type. Now, I don't know if you know, remember her, she had a sitcom. Um, I can't even rem remember exactly she what it was. I think it was in Yeah, W, that's it, yeah. WRP in Cincinnati, she was- Yeah, that's it, that's Lonnie Anderson. Yeah. So they were looking for someone that was like her. And at the time I was married and my late husband used to always do these really funny spoofs to Star Trek. And he would be like, don't go out there. It's a jungle gym. <laughs> or, and then he'd say, don't be a chicken bones. And he always talked like this, you know, it was this whole sort of pausing all the time that um, the original captain used to pause a lot when he talked. Yeah. I don't know if you ever noticed that. We're going to the stratosphere of the so-and-so to take on the Romulan aliens or whatever. So when I got into audition part, it was a long bunch of technical verbiage, mm -hmm. like really long run-on sentence. I understood why you have to pause a lot. And luckily, because I had heard my husband making fun of the way that the rhythm so often I just imitated him and then toned it down a notch to make it very realistic. So when I was talking about going to the outer stellar inner space and interfacing with the globulin New Hollands, I would just talk sort of like that. Anyway, that's how I got the job. And they were like, yep, yeah, you got it. I was supposed to be recurring. I was supposed to be on whenever Wesley wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Wesley was the, the boy that piloted the Enterprise. Yeah, Will Wheaton, yeah. Yeah, but I did not last long, although I did not have a death on camera, unfortunately. I just uh, did not last. Oh, well, did you get red-shirted? Did you get properly red-shirted off the show? No, I did not get properly red-shirted. Damn. No, I got sort of, um, it, it was kind of disappointing because we kept calling because I was supposed, you know, they said a 98% I chant. 98% chance I would be recurring. Mm -hmm. And my agent would call and say, you know, you haven't called. Do you guys, you know, oh yeah, we loved her. She'll be back. Don't worry. And it just never, we never got that call. We don't know why. I wish I knew because I did meet uh, Gene Roddenberry. He welcomed me aboard. Um, I made, I got to have some fun with Jonathan Frakes who played number one. He was so nice yes. and so funny and playful. Yes. And he went on to direct a movie or two. He's a very he good director. Did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, he became quite involved in the universe after Yeah. After, uh, uh, Next Generation. Well, that is awfully exciting. Any uh, Patrick Stewart uh, stories? Did you get to run into that? No, no. I mean, he ha on, on camera, he had me take the Enterprise to warp speed, so I got to do that. But um, no, I didn't really interact with him. I interacted with uh, Jonathan Franks and Rob Bowen, Bowman, Bowman, I think yeah. he was the director and they both kind of came up to me and cornered me while I was at craft services. Mm. And just to explain for people who might be listening that craft services is what we call it in Hollywood. When you have a break and you're hungry, they set up a whole table with cookies and apples and coffee and soda. And that's the craft service table. So when I was at craft service, they kind of surrounded me on either side. They came up and they said, okay, so tell us all about your character. You know, um, why is she here? Where are her parents? Was this nepotism? 
<coughs> excuse me. And they wanted to know what was your what was it like growing up and what planet are you from? They were almost like testing me to see if I had done my, I mean, playfully grilling me to see if I had done my acting and formed this character. So I had not. I had been a lazy actress. So I then did. That's when I, that's when I got the name Anthena, actually, because Jonathan Frakes said, I don't like that you're just Ensign Gibson. It doesn't sound like we know you well enough. We need to give you a first name. So he came up with Anthena. 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 And I came up with the story that I was a, a tomboy, but my father really, really had wanted a boy, and he had me. And my mother was just the opposite, always wanting me to be a proper lady. So I had almost like two sides of me, one where I was kind of tough and kind of strong, and yet I tried to still be ladylike as well. So in case wow. anybody out there is listening and they're doing a movie and they want to bring Anthena back. Ooh, yeah, let's bring Gibson <laughs> back. Bring her back. Bring let's you back. To that red shirt. The ultimate villain. How about that? If you're brought back, you were... Yeah. You, were, you were wrongly bounced from the Federation and you're getting your revenge. <laughs> revenge of a red shirt. <laughs> I love it. I love that. That's so good. We're writing it. It's live writing. Uh, well, that, uh, any other uh, sort of uh, television uh, anecdotes you'd like to share? Because I'd like to get on to what you're, you said, you mentioned B movies too, like, yeah, <laughs> I was in a really great B movie called Warped. And it was um, three generations of women. I was the youngest one of the three. And it was a horror film. It shot in Minnesota. And I was chased all over the farm by my crazy mother with a, who, or she was my, I think she was maybe my aunt. And she had a pitchfork. <laughs> and she was literally chasing me with a pitchfork. So I did a lot of running and gasping and, <gasps> you know, it was very funny and very fun. They were good people. The, the director, Roger Nygaard, went on he, to, to do a movie about Trekkies. He made the movie Trekkie. Oh, he did? Yeah. And since then, he has, he's got another movie called something about, oh, I wish I could Google it really quick, Love and Marriage or The Truth About Marriage. I think that's what it's called. And he now also edits for Veep and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, boy. Yeah, so he's had quite a great career. Quite a great career. Yeah. And speaking of Star Trek, I also worked with Denise Crosby. If you remember her from Star Trek, she was on there, too. She had short blonde hair. Oh, yeah. So I, I worked, yeah. I worked with her on um, a show called Key West which was a TV series with Jennifer Tilly and Fisher Stevens. And she played the mayor and I was a dancer in a go-go bar. <laughs> I got discovered there too. Two Tell jobs, two big jobs I got from dancing there. Experience, wow. Yeah. Uh, I seem to remember Key West. It That's was a really awesome Fisher show. It was an awesome show. I just loved it. It was very quirky. The characters were all flawed. It was very sort of rhythmic talking. Um, David Beard was the creator of that. Um, I have to look this up really quick. I got to look up Key West. Because I'm for sure that I watch it 
Fisher Stevens, I tell you what, like that that guy, that guy is everywhere. We're watching yeah. the blacklist. He was the star. He was the star. He was like a guy who wasn't. If this was a very funny, as far as the writing, this is very funny. In the pilot, he wins the lottery, and he goes to Key West, and then somehow he loses all the money because he owed taxes or something. So he goes from being rich to being poor in like. I guess that when they tested it, they're like, oh, people don't want someone to just be rich. They want him to be struggling. So talk about a plot shift. Oh my gosh, your character's name was Flame. <laughs> that was my character's name, Flame. Flame. I, was a, I was a go-go dancer because the uh, creator of the show and the writer, David Beard, uh -huh. who was also my acting teacher, um, he had come to the little go-go bar and fell in love with it. He goes, this is the greatest place. He goes, this is just great. So he actually wrote it into the series. He wrote, um, he was at that time writing the series. So he decided he needed a tropical island go-go dancing bar. And uh, there was a crocodile that hung out uh, in the bar and uh, it was just really fun. And all the regulars would go in that bar and talk. And we, I, I didn't have a lot of lines, but I did have one episode where I was sponsored Denise Crosby, who was an alcoholic and happened to be the mayor. So she gets her sponsor from AA and it ends up being, what? You're the stripper. I'm like, I prefer to call it dancer, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was my big guest uh, starring role. Wow. But I was on almost every episode. So I was a... I think I was on 10 out of 13 of the episodes and I got to live in Key West and it was beautiful. I was there for about four months. Oh, that's rad. Yeah, it was fun. And Jennifer Tilly loved to play poker. I play know, poker. she is quite the pro. Oh yeah, she went poker. on to win like a million dollars or something crazy. She won a World Series of yeah. poker one year. We used to play poker in Key West. That was one of the things we did, the actors, when we were not on the set. And I had this big red wig. Oh my God, that was a crazy story. Um, when I was told I was gonna be playing this role, I have to admit I was a little disappointed. I wanted to be up for one of the series, like one of the leads. I was a recurring character and I, I had hoped to be one of the regulars, but I didn't get to read for that. But I got to play this character and her name was Flame. Uh -huh. And so once I heard that, I pictured red hair and then I, my hair is very thin, so I wanted to have, they always put falls on me whenever I was working because my hair is so thin, they'd always put falls on so they didn't have to keep curling it. So I had this big wavy red wig. And for some reason, I had all these publicity pictures taken. I was very much a go-getter. And when I got there, for some reason, Fisher Stevens didn't like my, my hair. So he wanted me to wear this other hairpiece and it became this huge thing. And I'm just like the new kid at the show going, Oh my God. And everybody was arguing over my hair. And, um, so I ended up wearing the, the curly one. And I, I don't think he was happy because he did not like the hairpiece <laughs> at all, but I got my own punishment because the damn thing was so hot and we were filming in Key West. It was, 90 to 100 degrees and humid and I was basically wearing a blanket on my head so it was not a good decision the hairpiece 
Uh, I decided to take a peek at your IMDb. I want to talk about some of these other wonderful credits, the nine to five television show. One of my favorite comedies that I used to watch as a kid, Sledgehammer, The Jeffersons, Dallas, and it all starts with daytime, days of our lives. But I also want to talk about one of my favorite movies you were in, Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks and... (laughs) I mean, I, st- I, I don't know what you think of the movie after I'm in- it's a It's a wonderful film, isn't it? It is. It really absolutely is. It is just, it's perfect Albert Brooks. And, and Meryl Streep, a movie that I didn't even know she had done, but when I was just watching it, I was like, this woman can do anything. But- she can. She's, she's like, if I could aspire to be anybody, it's a toss-up between her and Helen Hunt. They're like two of my favorite role models. Oh, They're just yeah. both so awesome. Yeah. Helen Hunt, always such a hard worker, uh, always hearing stories about how, how, much she, how much energy she puts into preparing for a role. She, she's quite something. She's um, but yeah, that film was really fun. Um, I auditioned for it and got the part i i was i don't know if you remember but they were in he's in purgatory right and so when he first gets to purgatory he's in this little hotel room he's got his white bathrobe on yes and he's watching the tv and he's flicking through and i was one of the guests on the talk show you could have been the host there tom on and, uh, city yeah in judgment yeah. <laughs> and they and i just had i think one or two lines and they said um so is it true you slept with Benjamin Franklin twice or five t- or I, something like, or I think I said twice. And then he said, how was it? And I said, he was very fat. And that was my line. Or maybe I said he was very I fat. I remember this. I think no, I said he was very fat, Bob. Yeah, I think his name was Bob. So he was very fat, Bob. Oh my gosh, that was you. And, and even though it was a small part, yeah. If we did it like a TV commercial. He must, he, Albert Brooks kept trying, try it this way, try it that way, try it this way. He was fighting for the joke. I'm not sure that he thought it was landing how he wanted it to land. So he kept saying, he would whisper in my ear, try it this way. Oh, let's fool him and try it that way. But um, it was so much fun working with someone like that who really cared. Uh-huh. You know, he was so passionate about how, and I think he was very happy in the end. So. Just for that one line. Just that, for that. Well, I guess it was a couple lines, but still. Still. Yeah. I mean, just for the punchline like that, how he wanted yeah. it. Yeah. That's, that's that's drilling away at comedy, as far as I'm concerned. I love that. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, from doing television commercials, that sometimes it's just a couple of lines, and sometimes that's a, it's the hardest style of acting because you're not really necessarily working off of a lot of people. And sometimes you've just got to nail that one line, right? You've just got to say, that's the best burger I've ever had. And it has to be nailed in a certain way. And you have to get a whole persona and a character in, in just a little short amount of time. So I think commercial acting is some of the hardest acting there is. Um, you were wonderful in that commercial you did, by the way. The one I just saw where you were the sort of the Dick Cavett kind of host. What was that one? Oh, that was for CV's Shoes. That was uh, up in Santa Barbara. CV's 
which was an old brand back in the 60s that got uh, revamped in the last couple of years and they were looking to do they were looking to do spots so they just did a series of small 15 second spots where i was dick cabot I had broken my hand while riding a bike. I'd actually broke my hand. So I went into the audition with the cast on and I booked it as a broken arm guy. They were like, we don't need to explain it. Let's just put you in a three piece tweed suit and you'll just be on set with a broken arm. And I'm like, I love it. This is like the best gig ever. Yeah. I know. And good good for them for not letting that get in the way because... Some people are so set when they have a character that, like, why not? Well, uh, you know, also very interesting, speaking of bad timing, which is the title of our podcast, uh, I was set to do, I was set to do spots right before uh, COVID cancellations started. So uh, CVs, we were going to do another series of CVs commercials. Uh, but once they, uh, once preliminary words from China started coming in about the spread of this, then it all got shut down. And I just never heard thing anything again. So I imagine if they decide to get things back up and running, uh, because their their manufacturing is China, so their mass manufacturing is China. So. Um, if things are back up and running over there, maybe things will come back. But it's all a matter of things coming back slowly. We we know the name of the game. <laughs> we we've uh, adapted. We've adapted. Yeah, I think we've adapted. Of course, you know, being an entertainer and waiting to go on auditions or waiting to get the call about how that audition turned out sitting and staring at four walls waiting for things to happen i'd have to say that i was pretty prepped for covid <laughs> and i do not mean to be glib or or you know take any lightness in in the devastation this has caused yeah. but i would have to say that i was already doing a pretty good job staying inside because because really Going to auditions and maybe going to a part-time job that I had at Universal was really the only things that got me out of the house anyway, <laughs> you know. And uh, comedy, and, and comedy improv. Comedy, you know, go over to the Dresden, sing with Marty and Elaine, throw on the velvet, uh, go do some comedy with you, which is how we got to know one another. Uh, and uh, I miss that. Uh, I do too. I miss that. I loved when we did it. You were so good at it. Oh, thank you. And thank you very much for, you know, allowing me to come in and, and instruct at times. And I think, I think it's really, it's exactly what I needed as far as improv went, because I think I'd hit my improv max. I I had done all the theaters in Chicago and I had, had you know relationships with the improv theaters out here but they're going away you know i mean improv olympic is gone i mean it's gone gone it's gone in chicago it's gone out here it is vaporized so um but i i think that i had graduated from doing that team improv a long time ago but getting together with people who hadn't really gotten together in a while was 
was for me a good match was meeting you Mari introducing me to that group was good because I think that's I think that's what I wanted to get out of improv was fun again you know was that's, yeah that's why I started it because um I don't know I just I find myself becoming even this was before COVID I I felt I was getting a little bit I won't say antisocial, but like just reclusive, you know, just being happy. I've got this big house with a giant backyard that's like a park and my edit bay is here. So if I'm not at a production company or a TV studio, then I'm here uh -huh. and I'm comfortable and I don't necessarily need to be going out all the time. I'm not a spring chicken anymore, but I really missed just the laughter and joy of being around great people. So I remember when I first decided to start an improv group, I was driving at night, it was raining, I was going to little hole in the wall theaters to try to find one we could afford. And even just that, being out driving, looking for a theater made me feel good. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, slowly we formed a little group and we had some diehards that were there as regulars. And I, I found myself, I really believe that laughter is one of the best medicines um, I think everybody should find laughter somehow. If it's watching your favorite sitcom, watching stand-up comedy, join an improv group. My friend just joined an improv group in, um, she's in the Midwest, like near Kentucky. And they just, you know, she just did it for fun. And she just said it's changing her life. Because to be around other people and you're, you're, you're acting like you're you know, it's kind of getting in touch with your child, especially if like me, I was always playing with dolls. So I was always making them talk uh -huh. or I was playing with other kids. We were playing army or playing lost. And I remember going camping and we're going along the river and we're pretending that we're lost. And so it is make believe, right? It's a lot like finding your kid. It's letting your inner kid out, you know, in a safe place with a bunch of people that like, I didn't care whether I was good. I, I felt better when I did good at class or group. And I said, oh, I, I got some good, thought of some funny things there. But <laughs> other times I was like, oh God, I just, but I still had fun. Uh, I think it was always the goal just to try and have fun and worry less about being awesome at it. You know? Yeah. Being at least yeah at least that was the intention mm -hmm. like we weren't performing and i got the idea because my friend kenny who's um a producer friend of mine he took me to one in downtown la and it was the same sort of thing it was a bigger group there was probably about 15 people same thing everybody pitched in for you know snacks and kool-aid or what have you and we would go around the room and just play Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, when I would tell them, you want to come do improv, they're like, oh, I don't know if I can improv. So I'd have to say, well, it's really more like improv games. We're playing games that involve improv. Yeah. And then they were like, oh, okay, that might be fun. I think it's the less pressure, you know? It's yeah. the, the, more, uh, the more of a safety net people have to make up, I think people feel more confident in doing it. Improv right. games were always a good information. Spolin created those just to get kids introducing, just to get kids interested in theater because arts programs, even back in, you know, in, in her golden times were being cut and less kids were being introduced to the arts. So 
this is her way of trying to reach out to children. At least that's the way that I understand it. But uh, so I think that's a, you know, and a lot of those games, you know, spawned new improv games like comedy sports. That's where I came from, which is all improv games. And those were all Spolin derivatives. And those were all derivatives from theater sports, which was created by her son, Paul Sills. And that is sort of the connection of taking those games and introducing them to adults and <laughs> forcing Forcing, like you said, you know, forcing a child out of the adult. I don't really think you ever lose that. I think it's the, I think it's the drag of, oh, I gotta, I gotta be responsible too and a kid. So, and I don't think anybody explained to you that you can be both, you know, both things can exist. You can still have a child's mind, you know, like, Spielberg really pushes this to have that spongy child's mind, you know, even though you, it might be in a 60 some year old guy's body, you know. Yeah. So. As long as they can pick up their socks. <laughs> pick up their own damn socks. Yeah, pick up pick pick up after yourself. So when <laughs> the uh when did acting, when did the acting when did you make a transition from from acting to what you're currently doing now? Was there something in between because? Well, yeah, as I said, way back in the beginning, um, seems like years ago when we started an hour ago. Um, right. I have a lot of hyphens, but at a certain point, my acting career, I think I mentioned I played a go-go dancer on Key West. I played a, a stripper on um, another show, The Golden Palace. So this is the Golden Girls sequel. So this is after yeah. Golden Girls where they got the hotel. I noticed the name of the episode had Stan's name in it, which is Dorothy's ex. Oh, I don't remember, but it was Don che Cheadle. Is that his name? Don, Don Cheadle. Okay, so you were in, okay, I, so you were in this episode with Don Cheadle. And Chong, yeah. So Don Cheadle had hired a stripper and then for some reason they wanted they needed a male stripper. So he ended up having to strip instead of me. So I gave him lessons. And I was a very articulate, smart girl that just happened to do stripping. So that was a fun character. And I got to have a little back and forth scene with him. Um, but so yeah, I played with some strippers, some dumb blondes. And, you know, I didn't really mind. A lot of my friends would say, Jen, you're so smart. Why are you playing these roles? And I said, well, you know, you really to play somebody that's dumb or airhead. And these, they weren't all dumb, but when I did play the dumb blondes, they were always happy. That was one character I realized, cause they're just like, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, ignorance <laughs> is bliss. So I actually really enjoyed playing those characters. However, when I was working in Key West and some other shows, a lot of times, the strippers and the dancers would only talk about boys. That's always what they talked about was other men. Oh, did you see this man? My boyfriend, my boyfriend. And they were usually written by men. So I was like, you know, that's not what we talk about. You know, we talk about lots of things. So I wrote a play called My Father's Vodka, and it got produced by Lou Adler, who is huge yeah. mogul, he did um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. He's best mm -hmm. friends with Jack Nicholson, who came to some of our rehearsals. Um, 
And it was my first play and it was interactive. So the audience was given money to tip the girls. And I wrote it because earlier I told you that I had danced in this kind of coyote, ugly kind of little go-go bar. And I was the fish out of water because I had been a professional ballerina. I knew how to move, but I didn't exactly know how to be sexy. I was also a tomboy. I played basketball. So even though I could move and I had technical skill, I didn't have the tood, so to speak. Uh -huh. So uh, my friend and I, we were working as waitresses and our other friend was making three fifty a night down at some bar in the airport as a waitress. So I kept bugging her. I want to work where you work. So finally she said, I'm a topless dancer. And I was appalled, right? I was like, Oh, that's terrible. I could never do that. I know. But I started thinking about that money she was making and what I was making. So my friend Leslie and I, we went and looked everywhere for one that wasn't with no nudity. That would be more of a, a go-go dancing situation. Yeah. And we literally were in front of the mirrors practicing on moves because we had no idea. So when I started dancing there, I was completely, I didn't fit in at all. I really didn't. And I, there, I mean, the girls were great. Most of us, one of them was studying, a lot of them were going through school. They were smart girls. They were all pretty talented. But I had to write about that experience because it was crazy. And, and nobody ever depicted it like the way I saw it. They always make the strippers to be these victims. Like, was it De Deborah Moore in that movie? I think it was called Stripper. And she's like, oh, God, I have to dance to support my child. And then you cut to her going. <sighs> and I go, oh, yeah, she looks so miserable, doesn't she? <laughs> you know? She is totally having fun. So I wanted to show the fun side, the pranks we would play when we were, we would change our clothes in this little bathroom with like four or five girls. And we would, we literally, it was like a ballet. We could maneuver around each other, smoking a doobie, down in some glass of beer and running out and dancing. And, and there was just so many stories of things that happened. And there were some troubled girls. And then there were girls lying to their spouses about where they were working or their boyfriend and just all these great stories so that was my play uh -huh. I had a big agent come to the play he saw me he brought me in and said you're such a great writer we want you to be a writer actress so I did that for a while I and then I got picked up by William Morris agency and at that time was the birth of reality television and my agent knew that I could shoot little videos and edit them. It's just something I did on the side. And he teamed me up with another client, another female client. Yeah. And he said, go shoot a sizzle reel. And a sizzle reel is when you want to do a reality show, you, you do a little promo of what the show would be like with your talent. So we shot some sizzle reels and we sold three TV shows in, I think about two years. We had, two, we had three on the air. And we were kind of like the power duo. And I, I really just fell in love with it. And then I was editing the TV shows and they really liked what we were doing. And I just sort of, at the same time, my acting career was kind of like, well, if you haven't made it by the time you're this age, you know, 35 or 40, whatever, they're like, you know, we're trying to get Val Valerie Bertinelli work, you know, and she's a bigger star than you. So I kind of just went, yeah, I don't want to do, both it was too time consuming so i got behind the scenes 
I've directed, I've been producing and editing, and I feel very, very happy doing it. That said, I'll never stop acting. That's why I did the improv, because it was just a way to get that going. Yeah. And I, I would always be up for acting. I still do little little parts once in a while when one of my friends is directing something. They'll say, well, you want to play a part? I'll be like, sure. You know. Oh. That's how I ended up on the other side of the camera. Uh, okay. That, that makes perfect sense. It's just you, it was a regular transition. You, that seems to be the regular story is that you come out here to LA or you come out here to Hollywood, uh, with the idea of one thing. And then you realize that, that the business is so multifaceted with so many different layers just to get one thing on the air that there's something you might become interested in. Yeah, and there's, a, there's, I think being an actress too, you, I really admire actors. It's not as easy as it looks because there's a certain vulnerability. Like you have no say if they're going to light you right, if they're going to edit this right, if they're going to put the right music behind you. You could be doing a really profound, interesting job with your acting and they put the wrong music that's like, do, 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 do. And the whole scene is now kind of schlocky and weird. So you really are just, you're just a, you're a tool for the director, really. Um, and ho hopefully you have a really good relationship with your director. If it's good writing, good director, good acting, then that's fantastic. But especially doing some B-movies, sometimes I was like, what? Girls don't talk like that. That's not how we talk, you know? Yeah. There's something called the Beck Rule, where in order to, to follow this thing, you have to have at least two women in the movie, They've and they can't be talking about men. What rule is that? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that, and I don't remember it. I'd have to Google it. It's oh. the, I want to say the Beck Rule, or the Beckon Rule. It's some, some rule that somebody told me about. Huh. You have to have, you have to have, like, at least two women in it, so many scenes and they have to talk about something other than men. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, there's plenty a lot of time things for women to talk about than men, I'm sure. A lot of the movies when I would be reading for my part, I was often, they had a star in the role and then they had me as the unknown choice. Like if we don't use the star, we're going to go with her. And usually my character was so boring. She was just the girl that the guy got at the end. It was all about the guy and he was the hero and he was wonderful. And then there's just this girl and she's nice and she's, you know, wonderful, but they didn't really go very deep. She didn't have a quirk, like make her a painter or maybe she's saving animals. I mean, it's changed a lot, honestly, since then. Mm -hmm. I could tell you a story that you might think I'm crazy, but I kind of want to tell you a story. Speaking of women in film roles. Lay it on me. Okay. Um, I wrote a screenplay called In Pursuit of Blue Sky, which is basically In Pursuit of Happiness. And it was about two girls on the run for a crime they didn't commit. I really wanted to get it to Goldie Hawn because Goldie Hawn had her own production company. And I went to the Oscars that year Afterwards, we were going to get some food. We were starving. I was with another couple and I was, I was somebody's date. And 
I was really tired and really hungry and I just wanted to go eat. Oh, I have to back up. I was at the Oscars and I was in the nosebleed seats way in the back. And when Goldie Hawn came on stage, I just zoned in on her. I did a mental Vulcan mind melt with her. I am going to meet you tonight. I totally did that. And then I think I did it maybe with Jack Nicholson, who I later met, but I didn't meet then. And I think I did it with Meryl Streep. Can't remember. I know I did it with Goldie Hawn. So cut to the where I was before in the story. We're really hungry. We pull over. We go into the Ivy on Robertson in Beverly Hills. I saw the little white lights and I'm like, I want to go there. I, I was the one that pointed to it. We go in. I sit down. We're drinking. We got some margaritas. Guess who walks in? Goldie Hawn. And Meryl Streep. And Meryl Streep! I totally, I Vulcan mind melded them to come there, right? So I'm like shocked. Now what do I do? Like, be careful what you wish for, right? I'm sitting there. I can't take my eyes off of them. I'm trying not to be, you know, you know, oogling them like a stalker. So she gets up to leave. You know, we've been there an hour or so. She gets up to leave and I'm like, it's now or never, baby. Go up and say hello. So I go up. She's kind of saying goodbye to some friends. And I'm like, excuse me, hello. And I kind of put my hand out to shake her hand. She takes my hand, grasps my hand with her other hand. So now I'm being held in Goldie Hawn's hands. She's still saying goodbye to her friends now. She's like, okay, bye, I'll see you later. And she's like holding my hand. She finishes saying goodbye to her friend. She turns to me and she goes, hi. And I said, hi. And it was like I was looking into my sister's eyes, right? Seriously. I mean, come on. Seriously. I said, hey, I, I really hate to do this. I hope it's not inappropriate. But I just have to ask. I have a screenplay. It's about two women on the run. I would love to get it to you. She goes, oh, sure. She goes, send it over to my production company. And she told me the name. Of, and I said, oh, I know who you mean because I'd already done my homework. So I sent it over to this woman. She goes, tell her I told you to send it in. Sent it in. They loved it. They passed it up in Warner Brothers. Up, It kept going up the ladder. They loved it. They loved it. All of a sudden, I get a call. They said, because they, they would say they liked it, but they didn't know what was going on with it. And I said, well, I've done another draft. Can I send you another one? So all of a sudden, I get a call. Well, we have to pass because there's this other film called Thelma and Louise. Coming ah. So I was like, oh, okay. Oh, all right. What, what you going to do? Then I saw that Goldie Hawn was starring in it with Cher. Oh, no, yeah, with Cher. That was the original cast. Nobody even knows that, right? Such a little bit of trivia there. But it ended up being Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis. Uh -huh. And when I saw it, I was shocked because it had so much of my script was in it. And the funny thing is, is before this, I had pitched it all over town. And everybody, all the males that I took it to said, honey, female buddy, buddy films just don't work. I don't know why they just never work. And I was just saying, you know, complete novice, no attorney, no agent. Oh, but I really think the time is right. It just has to be the right female buddy, buddy film with the right actors. I really feel it. Women need a voice. And, and you know, um, it went on to get best picture or no, best screenplay. Yeah. I don't know if it got best picture. And... Uh, the writer was on the cover of Time Magazine for having changed the, the women's roles, changed the places of women's roles in film 
Yeah, yeah, it did. It it was uh, it was a big female power. It was a big shift in in the way movies were made. In the in the fact that again, Hollywood is wrong because because what's the old adage? Nobody knows what they want in this town. So until yeah. something until something works, no one knows if it's yeah. going to work. Right. And I don't think you're crazy because I think stuff like that happens all the time. Well, no, they, but they, some people say, and I won't name who, some experts in the field say that they probably loved my script, had this script, and they kind of went, eh, well, uh, so, so I think, I believe some of my writing is, is in there. And I won't go into details about that because it gets legal and weird, but, um, I was crying, you know, I was heartbroken. I couldn't believe how much of my story was very, mine had a happy ending though. And uh, it was two sisters that were separated at birth when their father kidnapped one of them and they meet and they're old. One of them's tomboy, one of them's sweet. But um, I just remember at that moment that I would never let anybody tell me my ideas were not good again. Because I believed those men when they were telling me female buddy buddy films don't work. You hear it over and over. And from then on, I'm like, nobody knows, you know? Nobody knows anything. And it is perfectly, it is, it, it is perfectly possible that you're like, oh, you know what? This script is okay. Maybe we just take a little bit and just kind of, this girl's a good writer. Maybe we just take a few of her lyrics. And I'm sure, yeah, really, yeah. There's all sorts of liable going into that, that, uh, that you can't go into it. but. Well, I mean, I, I was told as long as I tell what happened and I don't accuse anybody of anything, then it's fine. But I don't want to, you know, I don't know for sure what happened and I don't know where it happened. I mean, Goldie Hawn is still my idol and I'm sure she didn't have anything to do with it at that, you know, but I don't know. Oh, no, I, I yeah, yeah, who is to say, but intellectual property is a very, is a, is a very complex and very delicate thing. And we have, we have mouthpieces and just even if we blurt something, uh, we better sure not blurt it in the wrong place or blurt it and write it down and flesh it out and get it over to the DGA as quick as possible, you know? Uh, so I, uh, the minute that you started saying your story, I was like, oh, okay. I know exactly <laughs> where this is going. It, yeah, it was so weird because it was so magical the way I, I met her. You know, it's like, like the universe was telling me that this was my path. And I do, you know, I know this is a little bit corny, but I think it's beautiful at the same time that I've always try when things don't go my way, which has happened a lot for me. But I really try to believe that it was meant to be because it helps me when things don't go my way. Mm -hmm. Because like when I didn't get that part in that very first TV show where I came that close from having a career at the age of like, I was 22, 21, Mm -hmm. being on a TV series for three years. I mean, that was a big blow, but then I'm like, well, maybe I I was very immature. Maybe I wouldn't have been able to handle it. I would have, you know, ended up on drugs or something. You know, you never, 
You never so know. Could have been an in and out of rehab on the cover of People magazine at this point. I think I would have not handled it well if I had had fame at that age. I think I would have Lindsay Lohan. I'd be out, you know. Yeah. Partying and being crazy. I was. I was still. I didn't know who I was until I was at least in my thirties, I believe. So you never know. And then maybe I wouldn't have gone on to do this other thing or this other thing. And so I like to live my life that way. It helps to believe that for every no you get as, as an actor or a producer or a screenwriter, every no that you get is getting you closer to the yes or getting you closer to a path that might be very different than what you think you're supposed to be doing. Because, because why look at it any other way? That's the way I look at it. Like, uh, you know what I mean? Sometimes, if you're like, sometimes, oh. the answer, sometimes the answer is not right now, too. Right. Uh, whereas the idea, the idea is fresh in your mind and you love it and you want to get many people out to it, but Sometimes people aren't. Uh, the world, the world isn't ready for a female buddy buddy movie. You know? <laughs> it never works. Well, uh, yeah, that's just the thing. Um, that's another thing I feel that I I think some people are better at selling, and I think a lot of the people that are working in the enter entertainment in industry, whether they're uh, actors or producers or directors, they're very good at selling themselves somehow, some way. They don't all do it in the same way, but they're good at selling themselves. I don't think I've ever been good at that, really. Um, I think there's been times where I was really on and I nailed it, where I did feel like I was good at it, but I get, I have insecurities that come out and I doubt and I second guess. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that's the toughest thing about being an actor. That's why they have agents, right? Because the agent can do the selling for you. Uh, I, you know, you, that's funny. I was just sitting here thinking, uh, like our government, which is underrepresented, uh, you know, it's just like you have to base, you have to base your representation on the number of people that you have. And I believe that Hollywood is underrepresented in representation. I don't think there are enough agents and managers out there it's a hard that, job. that that all they're doing is selling artists to to powers that be uh, and and it's tough to get an agent or a manager and arts management is just as important as the as the art itself it's just that artists try to negotiate their own shit. Uh, their shit is going to get used and infused into some other work or it's going to fall through the cracks where it doesn't belong because it's really good. But because of an artist, which is being artistic, self-doubt is baked in, but also self-doubt is what you mimic from your parents too when you see when you see them have moments of self-doubt you emulate that and being an artist sometimes only make it makes it worse but sometimes what i think is even worse than that is when artists listen to other artists about what they should do with their art sometimes that is sometimes that is deadly you know it, uh, especially when those artists are doing the same thing 
a manager a manager said never look if an if an actor if another actor is telling you what's going on never take that actor for face value because they don't know what's going on so always Nobody knows what's going on. That's Nobody what I learned. What's going on. Uh, but there are some of us that act like we know what's going on. Like the, the people that I see that are out there and able to get the money and produce their films, they don't know. I like always, I'm so, um, like I feel like I have to tell, I have to be 100% honest. Yeah. So if somebody says to me, like I'm trying to make a movie and they're like, well, you know, it, Am I going to get my money back? I'll say, well, well, no, that's not a good example. Of course, you have to tell people that it's a high risk. But I think I over-explain things like that. Like, mm-hmm. like if I were, to, if you were to give me money right now for a movie, let's say I talk you into it. Hey, I've got a great movie starring you. I just need a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, and we're going to make it happen. Because now, for now, for two hundred thousand dollars, we could do a very small film and make it happen. You're the star. And it all sounds good. And then you'll ask me one question and I will, I will say too much. Like if you asked me about the distribution, I'd be like, well, I don't, I don't really know a lot about that part, but I think people that are better salespeople would be like, oh yeah, we'll hire people. We're going to get, you know, they just, they just, you know, like Trump, he's a good example, right? Have you studied this guy? I've studied this guy. He is, he just doesn't shut up. If you've had a television for the last 35 years, you know, right. you right. know Trump. And it's not. He also, it's also in his blood. Like, so you asked me, so what about the distribution? Oh, yeah, we're going to get the best people to do that. My, I've got friends everywhere. I know distributors. One of my best friends is, most of my friends are distributors. So that's no problem. We got that covered. And we can just distribute and distribute and we'll get it out. We'll get it to China and China and Russia and other <laughs> places. And, you know, it'll be great. It'll be great. Wait do you see. You know, and I, that's just not my personality. Nothing like you've seen before. No yeah, clue. it's going to be the greatest movie, greater than anything. You, so like, if I did learn anything from Trump, it would be to adapt that kind of confidence because I didn't realize how stupid people were to believe it. Well, I think really people just want to be, sorry. people want to be put at ease. But the number one thing a narcissist always wants to do is control somebody else's feelings about a situation that probably their feelings don't even apply but you know trump does a great job of trying to trying to control everybody's feelings and narcissists love to do that because then that keeps people at a distance from from what they're doing so and most people especially in this business i feel just want to be put at ease with what is being done. So what about distribution? Ah, well, I got the greatest people, blah, blah, blah. It saves you about 14 days of having to talk about it with them again. Right. I think you want to put put them at a distance. So, but you know, at the same time, like I look at my body of work as a director with my short films, I have an award-winning short film. I have a feature I'm working on. I'm producing another feature that I should tell you, I know we're about to wrap up, but um, I feel like I undersell almost, you know, like, oh, you know, I, uh, I can do it. I think, you know, I just, I don't know. I'm getting better at it though. I'm getting better at selling myself because when I think about it, they still call me a first time director because I haven't directed a, a feature. I'm, I'm working on one right now, but we're trying to raise finishing funds for that. 
So as of now, I have not directed a feature that you can go to the movie and see. So they consider me a first time director. And yet I have so much more experience than most first time directors. I've been an actor. I've been, I've done set design. I've produced, I've um, directed, I've shot, I've been a still photographer. I've done audio. I've done props. I've done costumes. I've done so many jobs so that I'm actually very qualified. And part of being qualified as a movie producer is that I understand almost everybody else's job because I've done it. Mm -hmm. And I also respect it because I've done it. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to the wardrobe department, my God, that's a hard job. It doesn't sound hard. You just get clothes, you iron. It's so hard. So many little details. And so I respect everybody's job. I I can speak the lingo for the most part. And um, so that's why I'm learning. I'm learning how to be, um, I guess it's confidence, learning to be more confident. Instead of focusing on what you don't know, focus on what you do know. Well, you know, part of why people continue to work uh, with other people is because they end up liking them. Uh, you are likable. You are so very incredibly likable. So uh, part of the, and I think that's it's in, in something to remember is that is that people working with you will will accept you the way that you are, you know, whether you, whether you exude confidence or not, people are come, come back to you to work with you because, because of the exuding happiness. You said it earlier, the reason that you liked playing the bubbly blondes is that they always just seem to be happy. happy. So, so when you exude happy, people feel more safe around that, especially in this business. I find that it is becoming a kinder, kinder and gentler business, uh, but slowly because people still don't know what they want or what's going on. You know, that still is the theme. But I find that people want to not be an asshole or be around assholes. I mean, you have those... <laughs> You have those anomalies, you have those exceptions, but after, after the number of, of commercial sets that I've been on where it's been the most chill, where I've walked away and people were like, great working with you every time, it's like those are the kind of places I like to go back to. So I think that you know, even as, even if you're not an actor, you're still a character in this business. You know, people still bring their, their themness to this business very much. So. Yep. Absolutely. I think. Is there, uh, so let's go ahead and wrap up. Is there anything you want to, is there anything you want to wrap up with? Anything? I do. I want to, I want to, again, just remind everybody to go check out my voting contest i mean it's let me say that again my video commercial contest political commercial and it's called so go vote uh, so go vote already.com so go vote already.com and then the other thing i want to tell you about before we wrap up is that i have been working very hard on a movie i am a producer and an editor on and it's called empire queen that's the working title 
and it's a medieval fairy tale with magic and dragons and giants and uh, pirate ships and it's very exciting with costumes and beautiful footage aerials and classical music it's a mostly uh, i guess you would call it a, an action adventure with humor um, it's definitely got a romantic comedy element in there too sort of a romancing the stone meets prince's bride is the way i would describe it oh excellent and <laughs> project that you're working on right now yeah it's almost done we're hoping to release it at christmas but if it has been a tricky with the with covid we have actors coming in doing adr right now and People have to get tests and it's just been a whole ordeal. But yeah, keep your eyes out for that Empire Queen. Empire Queen. Uh, how about anything digitally? You have any social media that people can come visit or do you, do you not trifle with that? Like Instagram or Twitter or anything like that? I'm, I'm going to learn, but as of right now, no, I don't. Oh my gosh, you, you're a marauder, you're a rebel. <laughs> compared to the rest of us well i get into facebook debates but uh, i'm sort of trying to wean myself off of that instead of debating that's why i did the contest i think was you know uh i yeah the only thing i do on facebook is i just do facebook live mad libs on friday you know i maybe yeah. share, share some memories i just i just can't I just can't with people, you know, I mean, I might share like a political memory here or there, but no one engages with me, you know, so I, and I'm fine with that. I don't. What do you mean nobody engages with you? Like, you know, I mean, if I show, if I do something liberal, I mean, I got some, some conservative, I got some conservative folks. I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. So, I mean, Missouri is for sure a red state. And I got, red state. State, I got some red state <laughs> folks back there, but nobody engages with me. And I don't engage with anybody because, you know, I mean, it's one person, one vote, and, and. But isn't this a little bit different? Go, that's where you go, that's where you go settle it. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. But isn't, it, isn't there a time when, like, if you look at throughout history, isn't there times when people should be engaged? Well, uh, I'm very politically engaged, but. Okay. I am beyond getting in a typey typey. Oh, a typey typey. Yeah, and, I hear you. And, that, and then pretty much <laughs> creating the attitude for the rest of my day. That son of a bitch, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, I'll delete this. Well, I'll back, 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 delete, 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 delete. Maybe I should write it this way. Oh, maybe I should be pedantic and begin that way. I, I know. Oh, my God. I no longer have time. You don't do that. I, yeah. uh, I can't. Well, the funny thing is, no is there's so many. There's, so there's actually uh, many trolls, too, that are hired or bots or trolls or whatever they call them. So you'll post something like, um, you know, like something about how the Electoral College isn't fair because, and that's not even a very good, good example, but you'll, you'll post something about how children shouldn't be in cages. And somebody will come on and say, well, why not? They broke the law and let them rot in hell. And I get all mad, I don't know, like you said, typey, 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 typey. And they're probably a bot. And they've, they've been trained, here's some things to say to piss off them, you know, because there's, there's so much meddling right now with Americans through social media, and we know that. 
and yet it's hard to spot a bot. You know how you can spot one though, is you go to their Facebook page. Like if you get a weird remark like that, like I can't believe that children are in cages. Oh, what the hell, they broke the law, let them rot in hell. If you get something like that that's really mean and you look them up and they only have a few pictures on their timeline yeah. and they're very like, wait a minute, and they have two friends and they're usually an engineer and very love <laughs> God. I don't know why well, they're always engineers. It seems to be the job. And those are probably paid people or bots that are out there just to piss you off. I'll tweet at Trump on my Twitter, but I won't get into it with like, I mean, I'll, I'll say yeah. something to him because it doesn't matter. It just goes into it and nobody, nobody's, uh, coming back at me there but i just i just you can, you can handle that i just can't with i can't with my relatives i can't with my with my with my friends in other parts of the united states and they're still my friends i mean it's just like but you know i can't i, I used to i don't yeah i mean th that is opening that is a whole other conversation uh, but being 2,000 miles away from somebody who has a different political opinion uh, about something that you do, it's a hell of a lot easier to to forgive them unless you were like face-to-face -face with them and literally getting yeah, we, saliva all over one another because you guys don't believe, you know. Yeah, but people stupid. don't, for, for the most part, people don't talk to each other when they're looking at each other the way they do on Facebook. People are a lot more nasty on Facebook, too. But I I would go into uh, my friends. I have a few friends that are, are right-wing Trump supporters, and I would go into their page sometimes deliberately just to try to see if I could get that much of a... And an, People thought I was crazy. I don't know why I did it. I even friended people that weren't my friends because they were very right wing and they were posting fake news and I wanted to see if I could, it was such a challenge, right? And I think I made a little headway. Um, I read this book called, uh, I read this book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And basically it talks about when you're trying to influence somebody, why are you trying to do it for one? And what's more important being right or your outcome. So if you have your why, in my case, I'm trying to argue with someone because I, I want them to know the truth about what's going on or what I perceive to be the truth or what is um, by the people that I think are smart and that spend their life investigating a certain thing, I, I tend to trust them. Mm -hmm. So the only way that I was ever successful was when I really listened to what they were saying I didn't put them down, even if it was something I thought was stupid. I would say, like, like not wearing a mask. I'm not going to wear a mask. And I would say, but why? I really am curious to understand why it angers you that much. Or why are you so sure there's no climate change? And whatever they said, rather than saying, oh, that's stupid, you have to say, I can see your point. Those are the, I can see your point. Five words, best five words that you will ever learn if you want to try to influence someone, if you can see their point. And by doing that, by saying that, it forced me to really see their point. Mm -hmm. And I almost always could. Like, 
oh yeah, you're in a rural area, you don't watch politics, nobody you know has COVID, um, you know, you, you have a lot of Republican and conservative friends and you've heard that the masks don't work and the media was confusing and they cut together Fauci saying all these different things. And yeah. by the time I finished really trying to understand what they were saying, I was like, I could see your point. And then I would say, I hope you will now try to see mine. And that's when you try to do the convincing. First you go, you know what? You even repeat it back. I can see what you're saying. You live in the middle of nowhere. You don't, you're very isolated. Nobody you know has COVID. You listen to the media. It's very confusing. You know, if I lived there, I probably would feel just like you would. And then you say, but here I am and all these people are getting sick. And anyway, I'm going off on... Oh, I know. Uh, and I will probably just uh, follow up with saying that the way that I understand it is that um, uh, a fundamental, I don't want to, a fundamentalist, because it means uh, it seems that I'm just referring to religion, but I'm also referring to politics, is that the implacability of fundamentalism is that it isn't real until it happens to me, you know? Uh, uh, abortion isn't a real issue to consider until I'm placed with a situation where, where I might need to make a choice. Um, gun ownership isn't an issue until one of my friends actually gets killed via gun violence or ends up shooting themselves killing themselves by their own gun because they were cleaning it until there is anecdotal proof that it's happened to them will there be any understanding yeah and gay people are weird until one of your relatives is gay and you find that out and yeah realize well they're still the same person they came out of the closet and i still love them and same yeah same thing until you Dick Cheney is a good example. You face this experience that the whole world that you see on 24-hour news, which I don't necessarily need, believe in the 24-hour news cycle. I think it's sort of corrosive and degenerative in a way. Well, yeah. and, and most of it is, did you hear what he said lately? And it's just, and then everybody analyzes, what, what did he mean by what he said? Well, I think, oh, yeah. It's I don't give a fuck. I don't yeah. give a fuck. I watched this guy on such and such movies, TV shows for years. He sounded like a fake idiot then. He sounds like a fake idiot now. And he hasn't changed his stick shtick in years. <laughs> and But, you know, he's persuasive, whatever. All right, kiddo. All right. Ben. Well, thank you so much. Epic. Um, what? Epic. This has been epic. Epic. Ooh, I hope that's okay. Oh yeah, no, it's great. What are you talking about? We got like, I mean, this is almost a, this is a great conversation. I mean, okay. I haven't done one of these episodes in a while. So come back big like this to give, to give somebody, uh, to give my small but loyal fans something to listen to. I think so. You it's might have to edit some of it. You might have to edit some of it out. Yeah, you know, I mean, we'll edit the charging stuff, but I'm just going to fuse that together. Then maybe some of the political stuff too, like... I don't care about that. I, I really, I don't... I don't you could cut it out. You could just snip it out. Because we we're too, we're too two close. hours, so... We're too close to this election, you know. I, I think that anything that's said is fine. We'll let it fly. Everybody's got their sides. If All right, but if I rambled on, you can snip. 
I have no problems. You could snip anything you want. I, I, I will. I've snipped enough things. So <laughs> snip and sniff. I'm going to oh. leave this unsnipped, but. Okay. Um, so if we, we're, we're cutting now, right? Well, so wait, can... well, yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's all say it. goodbye. It was really good to talk to Bye. you. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. I had so much fun. Me too. Well, that was quite an episode. I did not know we were going to go that long. As you heard, there was a little interruption that I had to edit out, but that's okay. Because sometimes, you know, you can just turn this on, listen, get some work done, wash some dishes. That's what I do when I listen to podcasts. And rarely do I go back and listen to my episodes once I launch them. I listen to other podcasts. I wash the dishes. I get my kitchen clean to podcasts, other parts of the house as well. So support podcasts and podcasting. Support my podcast and podcasting. You can go to velvettom.com. That's V-E-L-V-E-T-T-O-M.com, which is the portal to all things Velvet Tom. All of my social media links, my YouTube page, and also you can listen to this episode from the homepage of my website, but you can also listen to it on Stitcher. You can listen to it on iTunes. You can go directly to SoundCloud and listen to it. And I would love the support. And if you feel like you can support in other ways, you can also Venmo me. You can also Venmo me at Velvet Tom. Throw me a couple of bones. We'll do another one of this. We're coming back next week with a very great guest, somebody that introduced me to our guest that you just listened to today. So there is some connective tissue. I hope you stay listening. I love you. Wear a mask. Stay away from people if you can afford to. And let's get through this. Oh, and stay better.